Hello everyone. Um, my name is Robert Buckingham and on behalf of the Naomi Milgram Foundation um, and M Pavilion, I'd like to welcome you all to uh, all welcome you all this evening. And in uh, Boonarong, uh, the welcome is Woomerjinga. Um, we acknowledge the Boonarong as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. We pay our respect to their land, uh, to their ancestors and their elders past, present and to the future and extend that respect to other Aboriginal people present. Um, we're thrilled tonight to have uh, this discussion. Um, when uh, Naomi Milgram first uh, thought about the idea of M Pavilion um, and we started talking to people uh, in Melbourne about the idea. One of the first people we spoke to was Martin Carlson. Um, Martin is uh, uh, one of Melbourne's treasures, a legend, um, who knows a great deal about this city. Um, he knows everything there is to know about the art centre, which is opposite us. And of course, he knows a great deal about John Truscott and the fact that John, um, part of the reason why the pavilion is here and why Naomi was so um, uh, passionate about making sure that the pavilion had this position was of course because John, John Truscott um, worked to put a, a, a temporary pavilion or project here in the late 80s, uh, in 1989, the first one called Botanica, uh, which of course was done um, by Paul Bangay, who is here today. Of course, he was only very young there, 14, I think, uh, 12. And we're very excited that John has returned to these gardens and has planted the flower beds uh, to over on this side uh, as perennial borders, uh, which are framing this beautiful building. So tonight um, I'd like to introduce um, Martin who will uh, start the discussion. Thank you Martin. Thank you. Welcome everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome. In this extraordinary building and in this fantastic garden and when you think back that this garden was probably established 150 years ago when the settlement of Melbourne was taking place. When you think about that as a vision when the number of people who would have been living in Melbourne at that time, that people were prepared to do it, sure, there was some gold money around, but nevertheless they did it. And here we are as the testators, I suppose, of that and trying to take that forward. The pleasure for the John Truscott Design Foundation is a to be here in this garden for the reasons that Roberts outlined, partly also with some financial support from the Hugh Williamson Foundation and that's appropriate too, in the sense that Hugh Williamson was the treasurer of the Arts Centre Building Committee for a long time, and for the extraordinary far-sighted generosity of the Milgram Foundation to take this on as a task, to cause it to happen, and then to say to us, well now, what are the things we can do and who's going to help us? And for you, Naomi, thank you. So. Then when we decided, yes, we'd be happy to do something, now what is it that we were going to do? So we thought about that and we thought we'd try a cross-section of professionals who had worked with John and worked with John in all sorts of ways. On my right here is Ross Turner, from, who's the director of a company called Scenic Studios. And Scenic Studios has a great history in this town of getting things ready for shows, producing the stage requirements, in a world that is constantly changing from, I think the first time I went to see them, they were painting a, a set 
and this big piece of canvas was on the floor of a wool store in Kensington and they were painting it with a big broom that they moved across the floor in a way that one couldn't believe it would be right, but it was right, it was typically right. On my left here is our, our latest friend who's come to work with us. Who's, is, this is Mr White Knight. And David Walsh is becoming part of what we do and he reflects a step forward into another way. Next to him is Paul Bangay, uh, garden designer extraordinaire, now a worldwide author in terms of the publications that he is producing. And on the end is Stuart Purvis from Australian Galleries, uh, Collingwood and, and Paddington. The first, their gallery, their first gallery, as I recall, was opened in 1956. And he, there's a great story that he can tell us about the relationship that occurred between his family company and what Truscott and others wanted to do in terms of work by contemporary Australian artists inside both of the buildings. So here we are ready to go and I'm going to ask Ross here to tell us something about the transition from what they were to what happened when Truscott appeared to scene and wanted something quite different. Thank you, Martin. Uh, my connection with John, of course, is theatrical, so I guess this is act one, scene one. I, um, I started with J.C. Williamson's at Her Majesty's Theatre in 1960 and heard rumours of this young guy up at the Princess Theatre uh, creating masterpiece in some of Garner Carroll's musicals. It wasn't until 1963 that um, it came home to roost when John was commissioned to design Camelot. Camelot was probably the, the biggest production that J.C. Williamson's had ever done. Uh, they didn't call it, or oh, the management didn't call it Camelot, they called it Costalot. <laughs> uh, it, um, it was enormous. Uh, the technical side of mounting a production like that, in a live theatre, everything's on counterweight lines. You might have 50 lines at 150 millimetres apart. He had every line full of scenery that was 200 millimetres wide. So there was little or absolutely no room to fly scenery in and out. So that was a, a technical nightmare in itself. But working with John, because prior to John, all the major musicals that Williamson's did uh, was overseas productions that Williamson's had bought the rights of the, to do the scenery. Uh, Betty Pounder, a resident choreographer, would go overseas, um, have a good look at the choreography, didn't look at the sets very much and came back and he said, well, Betty, what are the sets? He said, oh, they're lovely. What colour were those? Oh, they're all pink. She loved pink. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, when, when John got involved, the level of detail was absolutely astounding. Uh, every square inch of these huge pieces of scenery he had thought about, planned and, uh, and sketched out. So um, that was quite a cultural shock for me. And uh, after that he was commissioned, he did the overseas production and then did the movie, so he was out of town for some time. So when he finally um, arrived back to do the art centre, I think the day after he arrived, uh, after having 
probably a little bit of a brief from the from the committee. I don't know how long, but he w sort of walked me through the whole project, and he had almost every every space in the art centre all worked out in his head. And he said, now, Ross, we're going to do this here, we're going to do that there, blah, blah, blah. He went through the whole thing. And this was after 24 hours of him landing in, in the country, uh, no jet lag, just straight into it. So we got involved in, um, in firstly, the, um, the bush-hammered concrete that was everywhere. The, the whole art centre was bush-hammered concrete. So he wanted to do something with it. So he, he had this vision... Uh, we were down in the basement. We were everywhere there's a, a blank piece of bush happen concrete. We were doing experimentation for John. So he eventually came up with uh, what is now uh, the interior of Hamer Hall. Uh, and incidentally, we redid it just a, a year or so back. So uh, the things he showed us how to do and, and our innovation of being able to, uh, to work out how to recreate what was in his mind uh, it's, uh, we were able to re, um, rekindle those thoughts when we had to redo the, the, the after after the restoration. Um, John was a very hard taskmaster. He, uh, as I say, had this vision, and he never wanted to hear John. You can't do that. He said, "Yes, you can." He said, "Just find a way of doing it." So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the house curtain in the, the main state theatre, he had commissioned um, the tapestry workshop to do it, but there were a lot of technical issues and they couldn't do it and they, they didn't have the, the room to do it. So he said, called me in and said, Ross, what can you do? And I said, well, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll first paint a full-size prototype on canvas and then see which way we can do it. So we did that and... Uh, then he said, well, can you do this on, on velvet? I said, well, I don't know, I've never <laughs> painted on velvet. <laughs> and, and not just ordinary velvet, it was the, the deepest piled velvet I've ever seen. It was just Belgium velvet. So anyway, we, we did it and, um, and John was thrilled and uh, so ticked another box for John. <laughs> so there's, there's all these projects, that, uh, all these challenges he threw at us over the years and uh, fortunately we were able to... to um, to come through with the goodies and uh, that was good for our team and great experience. Uh, so all, all those people who helped then are still involved and uh, I, I think um, I think we're all, all those who were faced with these impossible tasks are better for it. We, we, we learned in the theatre industry there's no such word as no, it's just you know, how and uh, it was up to us to to say how. So I, that's about all I. Ross, how different how different are the demands on you as a as a business and an artistic to what they were when you were last doing things like like here? Yeah, the the, the biggest demands at the moment that pretty well every production that came into Australia was actually produced, constructed, and uh, and mounted in Australia. Uh, Cameron McIntosh, who will traditionally have been one of our main sources of income, now brings all these productions in from overseas. They've done the London product, the London tour or the English national tour. So rather than paying the tip fees, they put in the container and come out here. So unfortunately, um, 
it makes it very difficult to to retain a big staff. Uh, well, when the economic downturn happened, I had to uh, quickly reduce the size of the staff, which meant I had to reduce the size of the trainees. Um, at this stage, I've only got one trainee. We used to have four or five. Uh, I used to employ up to 20 people. Now I employ three or four. So the the whole um, the whole industry is gradually shrinking. The Australian Ballet uh, always have been our main source of supply, but uh, they keep talking up the the virtues of digitally printed back cloths. But uh, it sort of happened for Cinderella, but that's a slightly different case where there's thousands of metres of uh, of fabric that was all the same image. So. It, it, Digital printing worked out fine for that that situation, but uh, it's sort of happening overseas a bit. But it's always a little bit of handwork goes on top of the the digital process. One of the things that Ross has in his favour that he's very quiet about, and Michelangelo would be really quite upset, <laughs> is that this man on my right here painted the inside of Hamer Hall twice. Mm. Not too many other people well, have done that well, in that well, scale. Well. But that was part of the process that he went through. We might move on. Other, anyone might ask a question of Ross. Please feel free to do so in terms of technique, changes in technology, potential for what is required for theatres and entertainment today. Yes. I, I would find it very hard to, understand, to, to, to imagine that he... Uh, Firstly, his um, the love of hand hand done artwork. Um, there's people like Graham Bennett who he relied on very heavily to uh, to recreate a lot of his thoughts, and uh, and Graham did the designs for uh, not only the house curtain but the Vic restaurant and the Melbourne Town Hall house curtain. Um, I, I couldn't really imagine that John would want to get involved on a point of principle <laughs> but he may have used it as a tool I don't know thank you anyone else got a question in terms of technique and changing and traditional things as they are well we might come back to you subsequently Ross we might move to Stuart on my far end and Stuart Purvis from a famous commercial gallery operator in this country and in terms of some issues about what you see when you walk around the inside of the theatres and the and Hamer Hall uh, wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for Australian galleries and perhaps you might lead us through that, Stuart. Well, my first encounter with John Truscott was when he was three and a half hours late for our appointment and for those of you who know him, you realise that that was very typical and very you, you would forgive it in a way, well absolutely, but uh, he came to the gallery and he stayed for another three and a half hours. And at the end of this, I realised I'd met a game changer. That something, the kettle was boiling, a new horizon on what was going to happen in this country, in this city of Melbourne. And before I came here tonight, I just spent a few moments over at the hall. And it's as fresh as the day it was done. John was there wandering around with me in my mind at that moment. Because... The intriguing thing that I learnt, although money is incredibly important as an exchange for a sort of seat for energy, really, and 
but this man was going to do something that no one could afford and it would still happen. And that's what he put us through. And because of his charm and his integrity and his style and what he wanted to achieve and his sights that were so high that it actually drew everybody in to that vortex. And it was an incredible pleasure, really. And I was Brett Whiteley trained. I knew extraordinary people and how demanding and strange they were. And that's why, um, and clever, and that's why I admire Martin, because I hadn't realised that without a Martin in John's life, somebody who knew how to just keep reeling out the, the lead and letting him go and then just pulling it gently when it was time to do it, I just feel that it was a combination and a brilliance of Martin who was allowed him to go way over budget, way over time, way over style, just and but he knew that it, it was taking all of us with him. Now, John, on this night with John, we actually ended up looking around at the stock that we had in Australian galleries and the shows we had on and the sort of things that John was talking about. And he said at the end of this that everything was terrific and high level and complimenting us, etc. But he thought that was just something a little more he had in mind. <clears throat> and what he had in mind was the six best artists in this country painting for what would normally take about two years and basically give it to the centre. <clears throat> Not a bad, bad place to start. And in actual fact, at the end of that, that's what happened. And our job was to go to the artists, John Olson, Arthur Boyd, Roger Kemp and so on, and say to them, we'd like you to do $2 million worth of pictures for $25,000. It's not the usual thing they expect to hear from a, a gallery representative. But there is a thing that happens in the arts that they know that this is the time to do something and that the money actually, which doesn't cover the frames, is not the issue. And I think that when each of these artists were visited by John where he gave them the magic spell that he had inside him, he, they knew instinctively that John was creating something which would take these artists much further than anything else that we could see in our sights at that time. So that... What he really did, what he did in front of me, and I was completely pied pipered by John, I just went along on the sort of magic dust of the trail behind him, very enthusiastically um, encouraging the artists to listen to him, that they got into the, th into the thread of it and that they could see that, that this was a very worthwhile thing for the, for the country in Melbourne, in, the, in this important cultural city, and it just began to happen. Arthur Boyd was in London when this was going on and Arthur eventually sent out something like 25 studies saying that if John liked them, he'd do the 25 paintings. Well, those 25 studies are in fact, which at the time seemed loosely painted and they weren't overly popular, but they are the 25 works or thereabouts that are in this concert hall to this day and they look really magical. And, um, and it was just a wonderful thing that... that I mean, Arthur Boyd, if you haven't been to Canberra to see the current show, I, I suggest you do, which was the Boyd gift to the nation. It's on, on show there now. Arthur really, Arthur really was on song and wanted to be involved in this and knew what he was trying to do. Um, I can remember John Olson halfway through his 
series of paintings say to me, God, I don't know why I'm doing this. And he had a little bit of a hissy fit halfway through, but then a couple of drinks and a bit of a conversation later got going again. And this just all began to emerge. And, um, and I think really John Truscott gave me one of my great five experiences in my career um, with the... Um, where, I, where we basically gave away what we normally try and sell to make a living. <laughs> it's as simple as that. I want to just tell you one other little tiny story too. As I was in there and he would be walking us around. This, this by the way, was a one-year experience. We almost did nothing else. It was quite fantastic. And also the beautiful train came out of this, um, mm -hmm. th th this, that year, which um, am I allowed to give an ad to the person that... Yeah. That um, it was um, commissioned by Mark Beeson. Um, John spoke to Mark about it, and that the result of that was that fabulous train that's that's there. That's one of the national treasures in, in today's world, and Jeffrey was very thrilled to do that as well, actually. But I just was in the concert hall, at the theatre, and John. It was when the um, there was a lot of gold leaf going on upstairs, uh, up in the ceiling, and there was these little tiny half cones which were being gold leafed, and the whole place was raining gold leaf, which was really rather beautiful. And John said, "I've worked out that if we don't drill a pinhole in each of these little cups, if the um, the sprinklers go off by mistake, they'll pull. It'll pull the ceiling down." <laughs> so it was very uplifting for me and it's a very a very happy mem memory and it was an honour. This was done with my mother, Anne Purvis. My father at that point wasn't alive and I, I think, you know, I, I, um, I've had a few experiences in my life when I've gone in as a boy and come out as a haggard man and that was one of them. <laughs> Do you think there was any uh, reaction of people going to the theatre who hadn't expected to find works of art in the foyers? Was Look, this is what I think that we, we absorb it by osmosis, that actually um, I think that it just worked through your skins. A lot of people knew exactly what had happened and a lot of people didn't know and might have just expected it to happen. I think the greatest achievements in life that are really difficult should look as though they were made by angel dust overnight and this was one of those. And I just think it's held up, uh, uh, raised the bar on culture and where we're all, and a standard that we are all trying to keep, that you, when you walk into that building, that you can't come out without that raising feeling. One of the issues that was paramount in Truscott's contribution was helping the collective who was putting the place together, that there was a real element in the art centre that was going to change this city forever in terms of what it brought. Conceptually, there was something they could relate to but there was also the capacity of him being able to do something like this. When he saw the bush-hammered columns downstairs in the theatres, he was really quite appalled that we're going to have those. And the obvious intention that he had in his mind immediately taking Ross's thought was, well, we, of course, we'll replace those with marble columns. But when it was pointed out to him there was a slight engineering problem in having to do that, no, he then found another way well, and he went and found a Turkish painter, as I remember, whose task was to paint those bush-hammered concretes so they looked as if they were marble. Well, this man came and he had his training course and he was delighted with what he did and he called John down to show him and John said, no, do it again. 
And this poor fellow had to do it six times before John was sufficiently satisfied with the quality of what he had to do. And the man was beyond belief. He was an angel flying around in heaven, this wonderful thing that he'd been able to achieve against all the obstacles. Any questions that in terms of... Yes, please. Stuart, where do you think Truscott got the inspiration to put art in the theatre, in the public spaces? Because it, it would have been very unusual at the time mm. and still is very unusual. I mean, we're used to seeing posters and ads rather than beautiful art. So where do you think he got that inspiration? I, I'm going to guess this answer because I don't actually know, but it's a terrific question. And um, I think that, you know, the... the, the John had seen some of the great things in some of the great nations and knowing this is a young country, somehow or other I think that he felt that the artists would be able to do something um, that would give it a sense of style and importance um, that otherwise wouldn't exi exist. And I think um, he thought that it was certainly worth giving it a go. He'd spoken to several people. Um, he may have received some ideas from them. and. I think that some people also said to him, if you go to Australian galleries, you may have a sympathetic ear. Um, um, and we were handling the right sort of artists for the, for the project and so in that sense. But I just think this was the thing of John, that he actually, he pushed, his, he pushed the boundaries of every single thing that he, that he did. Um, and in reference to where you were talking about um, sets and, and lengths of timing and so on, that's that's very John. And every country needs needs that, you know. And in a sense, with um, Gough Whitlam dying yesterday, the thing that seems to be that, that he was very necessary at that time and pushed everybody out of their skin, and that was politically the case. Paid a price for it. Brett Whiteley paid a price for it, um, and John paid a, paid a price for it. Um, in the, in, and didn't last as long as he should because, in fact, the thing that they do is that they live 80 years in 40. Um, the answer is I think it just came out of a sense of brilliance and a sense to try and test us, and I think John wanted to leave something very, very good here, which he did do. But also maybe about a sense of wanting to engage with the local language as well mm. because he'd spent so much time overseas. Absolutely. So maybe it was very important mm. for him to connect mm. with Australian artists at mm. that time. Mm. One of our number here tonight is Vicky Fairfax, who produced that wonderful book on the place across the river. Vicky, have you got any thoughts about that from your experiences, both with John and with George when he was here and where we were going, that makes you'd like to make a comment about? If any of you haven't read or looked at a place across the river, you should certainly get a look at it in your public library, a fantastic right. production, which the foundation <laughs> um, was able to publish. I, I was interested, um, actually, in your comment about um, about John wanting to engage with, uh, with the local, uh, with local artists and the environment, because it just occurred to me that one of the things that John would do whenever he got five, ten minutes away, which wasn't often, or most weekends, he would escape to the Dandenongs. He would escape out to nature. He had to get out of the city and he had to, um, he, he, he loved being out, out in the bush and, and the Australian environment. And I suspect that that was also a great, a great love of, 
of his to see to, to bring that in. And, and I know um, it was very much his thinking um, with the tapestries that are up on the top floor outside the pavilion as well, the tapestries of the botanical gardens. He was really thrilled about the fact that he could bring the botanical gardens into the art centre. Uh, he wanted to, us to arrange for him to be taken on a journey uh, into the forests up there behind Lawn. You know, when you go back along the, <coughs> the Great Ocean Road or to Lawn through that large forest, which is cool, I don't know which is here. <coughs> it's the Otways, yes. He wanted to see the colour of the gum trees and so on, and we arranged Are there to any drive him there. Questions or comments that anyone might have about the whole nature of taking, going down that path of opening up spaces to new forms of art in whatever form that was and doing that out of the public or private purse wherever you could find the money to do that. What feeling do you think people have about that today? Jeremy, do you have any thoughts about that? You had seen and heard a lot of that probably in your... Any other comments, questions there? Well, while we're talking about things beautiful, we might leap to gardens, obviously, and the work that uh, really Paul was able to do and in terms of gardens and flowers and bringing another dimension to it. Paul, do you, what challenges were given to you when you were having to pick up the things that related to Botanica and and there was some planting out here of Paul that's just been done recently that recreates that. So any comments you might like to make nature about that would be terrific. Um, just one thing uh, uh, I was thinking about then, about why he put so much into the art centre. He was one of those rare people who were just so incredibly talented, and you, I don't think I've ever met anyone so gifted and talented as John was, but he was happy always to take the back, the back, the back seat. And so he was really wanted to foster other artists and, and craftsmen. And I think that's probably why he wanted, you know, other artists to sort of shine inside the art centre and not so much himself. I mean, I've never known anyone to direct from behind the scenes as much as John did, but not take any of the limelight and happy, to, happy not to take that limelight. But um, with, the, with the garden here, I, I can remember I was not quite 14, I was like maybe 25, and uh, Kevin O'Neill brought John Truscott down to my shop in, in, in Malvern Road. And um, I can remember John swishing in, he had that big mane of uh, grey hair, big cigarette in his hand, he held it like a movie star, you know, like a, not, not like an Ocker Australian. And he was very tall and imposing, and I was as nervous as anything, I couldn't believe that he was coming in. And he said to me, he said, um, so I'm taking over the Splitter Festival and we're going to do the Melbourne Festival and I want to show off horticulture as an art form. And he said, that's your brief. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> he said, I'm going to give you a site in, the, in, the, in St Kilda Road. And um, by the way, there's a few other constraints. You can't touch the grass. We need two acts of parliament passed to actually put it there. And we need to find half a million dollars to do it. 
And anyway, he managed to pull all those things off. He went to Parliament. He got two acts of Parliament passed. He raised the half a million dollars from the then uh, state um, bank and uh, gave me this wonderful platform on um, scaffold and said, there you go, there's, there's the site, now go create a garden. And it was an amazing challenge because as a, as a garden designer, you're used to getting into the soil, putting your hands in the soil, being able to dig and, and let things grow. And here we had, I think we only had like two or three months and basically, it was to create a Chelsea-style garden on steroids. <laughs> they had two years to plan, and we had three months to plan, and, and do this wonderful garden. But you know, it was just—it was just such a wonderful thing as a young designer to be given this op this wonderful opportunity in such a prominent spot to to create these gardens. And he 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 took me out of my comfort zone and and said, "I want you to show horticulture as an art form," which was. A challenge in itself, but also to throw, show it in a very theatrical way. You know, don't create a garden that's predictable or that it's going to last. I want something that's only going to last two weeks, that looks like it's going to last two weeks, and it looks like magic. And and you know, we, and the first one we did, we did in the marquee. I remember because it was September, and in those days it used to rain in September. It doesn't rain anymore, but it used to rain. And so we we created this whole wonderful garden in in, in a tent on St Kilda Road, and. Um, one of the challenges was building it on the scaffold. And I can remember we were put all this soil on top of it and these huge trees and ponds and, and, and lakes and, and uh, wonderful buildings in there. And I remember the, the thing slowly started sinking into the ground. The scaffold was like going down like this. I think we are sinking it ten times the rate of Venice into the ground. We were worried by the end of the exhibition that we were going to not be standing. What this illustrates is, and it's had a direct influence on the work of Truscott Foundation is Truscott's capacity to recognise and encourage talent yeah. in a whole range of issues and that's something that needs, and around here today there are some people who are part of the existing Truscott Design Circle and there are some who are going to be hopefully involved with it in whatever form it goes on to the next stage and that was a very significant part of what this whole business was about and that is in fact what Naomi's enabling us to do also as we, we move further forward. Jumping from all that we've had there today, one of the issues that people sometimes found infuriating with John, in the best sense of the word, this is what he might, might want to do today, but tomorrow he had something else he wanted to do for that thing, and he had to learn to live with that. Well, one of the people who's helping us to do that really is Andrew Walsh, who is the big supremo of White Knight, and who is going to bring to the Truscott Foundation, and hopefully also with some of the people in the emerging circle of lights that he's got in mind for them. So, Andrew, would you like to tell us something about what you might see the future might be in relation to your great skills and talent? I um, didn't know John Truscott as, as well as the, the other four. He was more of a brush, with, a brush with fame for me, although I did go to his house in Hollywood um, once many years ago. Um, so I'm much more of a student of... Um, of of Truscott and I'm, uh, I've always been a student of his work in the theatre and his attention to detail. One of the things I do remember about John's scenic work was, the, was him always insisting on painting in shadows into the corners of the, um, the scenery so that um, the, the, the natural form of a room would, would, would appear. Um, but um, more importantly, the stuff that interests me about John's work is the stuff outside the theatre um, and the work that he did at the Spoleto Festival and then the Melbourne Festival. Um, taking not only the, the, the performances out of the theatres but um, bringing the people out of the theatres as well to, 
to inhabit the streets, and Botanic is a great example of that. Um, and obviously the, the project that I work on at the minute um, is, is, is very much the same sort of, the same sort of thing, where um, the brief really is to play it out on the streets. So quite often as I, as I sort of contemplate um, what, we, what we may and may not do um, for the next White Night, um, I, f I feel at times I'm channeling John and, and some of the work he did. I, I think the, 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 great, um, the great arches that, um, that, that John brought back, because they're not, they're, not uh, they're not a John original, they, they were, were very much a Victorian thing and, the, and the, the, the most famous set of arches across Australia were for the Federation in 1901. But, um, John reinvented them and, and brought them back as very much part of of the festival, and I think not as a criticism, not as a criticism of the festival, but but I think uh, one of the things that seems to have changed in in the way the the Melbourne Festival um, exists now is there's very little evidence of it on the streets. It's it's um, to me I think it's a tragedy. I think you know, and I think it's one of the things that that John John really brought to the festival was you knew it was in town, and everybody knew it was in town because they had to walk through it and around it and, um, and over it to, um, to, uh, to, to get to and fro. Do you want me just to walk around? No, we just... You, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, so, um, so, so playing it out on the streets was very much a, a thing that John did and it's certainly a very much a thing that, that we do for White Night. But I think I, I, I would like to say a little bit more about just the way John, I think John thought. And that was this incredible attention to detail. But the thing that he also had was great, was, was great guts, great determination and great vision. But, but the drive to make sure that, that, that what he saw across the horizon was, um, was something that, that finally came to reality. And that, that drive and that sort of determination to make, to make the, um, the work um, come to life um, uh, is, is very much a hallmark of what, what John um, what John did, and, 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 and as everybody has said in their, their own individual way, um, to do that he empowered other people to, 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 to bring their create creativity forward, and that's, and that's a great hallmark not only of, of his vision, but a hallmark of the man, that, um, that he was prepared to, to sit in the background, although you know, he was a great line of a man, he was a, he was a Gough Whitlam um, um, uh, of, of, of the arts. Um, he um, he wasn't uh, unlike Whitlam. He was he was happy to sit in the background and um, and let the work shine. And um, and I think Melbourne is a is a much much better place as a result. Could we have the screen on that? On? Because on, we have some shots here which relate to some of those themes. Martin, Martin I can I can remember when the arches went up and how important the arches were to him building them over St Kilda Road and how that great cultural institution, the RSL, popped up and said, you can't build arches over St Kilda Road because you're going to block the view of the shrine. They, they sort of scraped up this old legislation and said you can't block the, the view of the shrine. And he actually went to the RSL. His tenacity was so much that he went to the RSL and convinced them that they were allowed to be up there for two weeks. But he would never give in to anything, would he? No, that's right. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's, the, that's the sign of a, of a, a true creative, which is... You're not going to let anything or anyone get in the way of the vision. Yeah. So all this that you're seeing here was on this virtual veritable site, uh, and it was part of uh, a great exercise in all sorts of talents being brought together. And we, for our little part, are endeavouring to find a way that a, 
uh, a creative Melbourneian like Truscott should be recognised in some of his peers in what is in the society and the things that we're doing today. Uh, it was the courage, it was the skill, it was the end exercise, but over and above all, it was the total public acceptance, in fact, of what it was that was being done there then and now. You might just like to look at these as they keep coming along. All those gardens are built on that scaffold. You can see why we sunk. <laughs> all the pools, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Act of Parliament said we weren't allowed to touch the grass. We had it all float above the grass. Yeah. <laughs> if, if it gives you Stupid, any confidence, nothing's changed. We have outdoor heralds show. It was a start, wasn't it? Yeah. Can we get to the arches? Oh, it it uh, it's beyond our our capacity financially to pick it up. It's still in the gardens of the man who built the last conservatory. That was the actual botanica, uh, but it's deteriorated so much that probably just wouldn't be worthwhile. See? Well, yeah. Just up there across the road, it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Any other questions around the room, please? Yep, whatever it is about relation to what we've been doing. Or? You really get a, did get a sense the festival was on mm -hmm. yeah. just from driving around and walking around the streets when John did the festival, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. Well, Kevin? well, and he played so much stuff out in Sorry. the streets as well. Yeah. I think there's a question here, Kevin. Is that work? Yeah. I'll stoop. <laughs> it struck me coming in here tonight and looking, looking at the title of this uh, event, and the term creative Melbourneian was used. And uh, last two weeks ago, last Tuesday, I had lunch with a friend of mine from Sydney called Hugh McKay. Now, Hugh <coughs> is arguably the, the number one social psychologist in the country and a, a writer in the press that you would have read about and an author of several books a great student of life. And we talked over lunch about things in general and we got around to talking about the festival and we talked about the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival and we talked about the arts, we talked about the centre, we talked about Truscott. And as we were walking away, Hugh said to me, as a matter of fact, he said, naturally this has happened, would happen in Melbourne, it's the creative centre of Australia. Now we, we kind of accept that among ourselves and the evidence of if we're in part of the evidence, <clears throat> we're talking about the evidence, more evidence over the road. It's in the performing arts, the graphic arts, it's in the tapestry centre. It's all over Melbourne and yet I don't sense that there is a collective push for this that we, we deserve, that Melbourne deserves. I say we, I'm not part of it, I'm an observer of it. I'm excessively proud to, to be in a city that has such a creative heartbeat. And you talk about other parts of the world and if you're a young designer 
and you're in Europe, you'd be belting down to Berlin to be amongst the other great young designers. And Melbourne deserves that. And we, and we get it put in boxes like we've got to have... We haven't got a harbour bridge. We haven't got this. We haven't got these physical icons. We've got the, we've got the most important part of art, and that is a sense of the worth of the creative talent. And I think uh, I would like to applaud the Milgram Foundation for this as just one Melburnian. I love hearing the stories about Truscott. I never tire of them. I never tire of walking around here and seeing it in evidence. And I think we all owe it to each other to keep finding ways to make the story of the great creative Melbourne that we've got start not only stay alive but grow and grow and grow. Martin and I have talked about <coughs> the recognition of creative Melburnians. You start to write a list, it's endless. It's endless. And you, and you provoke a name and someone says, God, I'd forgotten about that person. So tonight for me is just another great reminder of living in a creative city and we, we undervalue it, I think. Thank you. Thank you. We, we have made some mention of some potential for younger emerging designers and there's a few more words of wisdom to come from us from here. Um, part of... Um Part of White Knight and part of a personal commitment to the Truscott Foundation is that we, we're going to create a, a, a work within this, this coming White Knight, so 2015. I keep saying uh, this year's White Knight, but of course it's next year's White Knight, um, which is a, a project we're calling Circle of Light, which essentially is to create an, a, a series of opportunities for young designers, whether they're lighting designers or scenic designers or whatever, um, to work with um, either a technician or a pile of equipment or a mentor from the field that they're interested in working in and we'll provide them with a, with a, with a, spa, a curated space that, um, that allows them to actually envision something that they, um, they'd like to do in that, sort of, in that design realm. So in a, in, in a sort of half-cooked idea that the idea essentially is to either provide the technical support and, and the equipment or the technical support and the equipment and potentially a, a person to mentor them through the creation of a work that we'll then put on in White Knight. Um, White Knight last year attracted an audience of 550,000 people and I suspect it's safe to, to assume that it'll attract a slightly larger audience. Um, we are going to do a little bit of work around um, the, the, the size of the crowd or at least the, the size of the footprint which is always a challenge because uh, you know, one, one of the measures of, of success of any any sort of endeavour is how many people bother to turn up. The, the challenge for us is, is, is how to you know, maintain the amenity given that they are going to turn up. So. But, um, but that said, um, the Circles of Light project is an, is an opportunity for um, some young designers or sh young artists working in the, in the sort of the Truscott world, if you like, um, to, um, to show their work to um, a big chunk of Melbourne. So the basic premise of what we've been talking about is to try to identify things like that and give them some encouragement to go forward. Uh, Robert, would you like to make any comment about future events taking place in here so we, we can tell all our good friends here about what's coming? I think there was a... Um, we passed around a, uh, a publication called Assembled Papers, which was another collaboration that we've done. One of the nice things, I think, about M Pavilion is... Um, we were in, in some respects, I think Naomi and I saw the pavilion 
as a, a bit of a festival model. And with all festivals, one of the things that makes a festival strong is the relationships, the partnerships and the collaborations. And I think everyone here understands that. And so that's why we made, um, that's why we established a connection with um, the John Truscott Design Foundation, the Boyd Foundation, uh, the Wheeler Centre, the Arts Centre, uh, Melbourne Recital Centre. And I think if you look online at the program and also in uh, that publication, there's a, a list of things that are happening this October, um, you'll see some of those connections. Okay. So that would be great. Mm -hmm. One of the things that when we talked, uh, when I spoke to the Truscott Foundation, which I thought was interesting, was uh, the foundation talked about the fact that which something that we forget uh, is that Truscott, John Truscott took so many events outside and put them into the gardens and did large-scale um, free outdoor events, which, as I understand it, really didn't exist much in Melbourne apart from Moomba um, before he did it, which is, an ex which is extraordinary because now we just think that Melbourne always did outdoor events. So perhaps people Thank might you. like to talk about that. Any further comment anyone would like to make? May I therefore thank everybody uh, for their participation at every level. It's been absolutely fantastic. I hope we get a bit of charge up to want to do some of the things that have been suggested here. We are giving little cards around there about Truscott if you'd like to take one away and think about talking to us or sending us an email or something exciting. But to Naomi and everybody who's caused this to be together, thank you very much for coming. <laughs> two things that um, have happened which probably aren't in that document. Um, we're very happy that um, uh, a woman called Pamela Goulburn, who is the curator of the Fashion Icons exhibition, which, is on in, which opens in South Australia uh, in Adelaide on Friday, is coming to Melbourne briefly. And so we're doing, she's going to do a talk um, that the, the foundation is presenting at the RMIT Design Hub on Monday night next week, so the 27th. And then... The following week, on oh, and then Thursday. Gosh, the same week, um, on the thirtieth, here in the pavilion, um, the director of MoMA, uh, Glenn Lowry, is in conversation with Edmund Capon, who is the, of course the former director of the Art Gallery of New South Wales and now uh, chair of chair of the Australian Institute of Architects Foundation. Thank you. <laughs> it's a team effort. So um, I hope you can see, can come and do that as well. Thank you. <laughs>